everybody. Thank you for coming back to The Lawyer's Daughter. I really do appreciate all the listens that I've been getting lately. Um, I feel so supported. It's a, it's a great feeling. As I really want to get through this stuff with Joe Alsip because I, I'm learning a lot about the case. In fact, my poor mother gets a phone call every time I'm done with one of these recordings because I'm like, Mom, I don't remember this or why don't we know more about this other thing? It's, it's driving me nuts. Like, I just need to know more. Um, the other thing that it's funny, I, I'm sitting in a, you can't see me, but I'm sitting in like a lazy boy, boy recliner, a very good value I got at the Gray Bears in Santa Cruz for I think 30 bucks. And I've dragged it up to my daughter's house in Sacramento because we were supposed to have a hearing tomorrow, but we're not having a hearing tomorrow. I was sheltering, I've decided to shelter in place with her as I've mentioned, but um, I'm as I sit here in this recliner and I have my giant murder book, which is a old photo album. I think some of you may have seen pictures of it, but it's it's an old-fashioned photo album. And for those of you that don't know what those are, they were where you put your pictures. They weren't on your phone and they weren't digital. They were printed. So you put them in a photo album and they accommodate, I think these pages are like 12 by 12. So it's huge. And then you add the weight of the pages themselves. And, and the downside to these old photo albums is you can't really take stuff out of them because the glue that's used, the adhesive that they use to keep things in place, the photos, or in this case, these newspaper articles, would just tear up. They would just shred the newspaper articles because the adhesive kind of bonds with the paper. And so you can't really do much about it once it's in the book, especially if it's as old as this one is, which is, you know, 40 years old at this point. So I was thinking that I used to, one of my most favorite summer things, and I thought I was such a badass, is I loved the library's summer reading program. And of course, when we were little, the best things were when the librarians used to read books to us. God, do you guys remember that? You'd sit there on the floor, and this was all ages. I mean, all um, ages, meaning not depending on when you were born. I think every generation has had this experience, if you're lucky. I think maybe it's waned a little bit as we've gotten, as, as our culture's aged. But that that feeling of being on the floor, sitting cross-legged with other kids, and the librarian would pick up that glorious picture book, and they'd always pick out a good one because they were librarians, and they always knew the best books to pick out with the most glorious, glorious drawings, and they also knew how to tell a story. So that was always exciting, as you love hearing them tell that story. So as I picked up this book, I thought, oh, I'm kind of like the librarian. I'm kind of like one of those really cool people. In fact, it's so not my personality, but I, being a librarian was certainly something I entertained at one point. Just because I revered them, they were such honored people. And the library I went to, which was where we grew up in Santa Paula, it was a small town library. In fact, the first library I went to was a historic building now in Santa Paula, I think. In fact, it might be gone finally. I was trying to find it on Google Earth just because I remembered the building and it was such a beautiful building. Uh, it had... Um, like three floors and a basement. And I think the children's section was downstairs. And so it always felt really special. And then they built the new Blanchard Memorial Library, which was very fancy. And as a reward in the summer reading program, if you read all your books and did really well, you got to come to a screening of a movie and they would rent a movie. And this is still a big deal. Now you have to go back to the 60s because this was a huge deal. Back in the 60s, when a cool movie like a Disney movie happened, the only time you could see it was either at the theater or if the Disney 
show, not the channel, just the Dis- wonderful world of Disney, would play the movie. And we used to wait with bated breath for a, a movie or an animated sh- um, film a show, I was going to say, because those were the special ones. Otherwise, we usually got nature nature programs. And that kind of sucked because Wild Kingdom came on right before the wonderful world of Disney. So you'd already seen animals hunting each other on the wild mo- wild desert or wild Africa or wild wherever, someplace wild. So when Disney would come on, you, man, you would just pray, please let it be either something animated or a real film like Swiss Family Robinson or Mary Poppins or something that was a big deal. So in the library reading program, when you finished reading all your books, I think they actually paid money to have a movie, a real film that worked in a movie projector that would play that movie for all of us as our reward for being good summer reading um, campers. And so it's funny how just picking up something heavy like this big murder book can take me back to a time like that. But I think that's what aging is about. I think this is a new feature now that I have to learn to live with because this is what happens when you get older is you start to remember these things from your childhood. Okay, so we know that the prosecution has rested in the ALSIP um, preliminary hearing. And we know he has uh, that Joe has this attorney, Richard Hanawalt. And we know that the um, incredible Pastor Michael is looking a little bit like he's unusual or special. I, you know, how he survived that uh, Mormon gang kidnapping, I'll, I'll never understand. I mean, wow. There's there's an untold story we might see it on Dateline. That sounds like something there. But, um, okay, Jen, stop being an ass. All right, so let's pick up where we left off. We're going to come into this story now. We're all the way to April 30. This poor man has been in jail now. Joe's been in jail, what, six months at this point? From November to April 30? Pretty close to six months. And um, soldiering on. And so... Here we go. We're going to get into the defense now. The prosecution has um, closed, has, uh, what is that, you know, stopped talking, which is something I probably should do. Anyway, the, the prosecution has rested their case. There you go. And now the defense is coming in. And this should get interesting because I think we're going to go all over the place here. Remember, with a big cast of characters, it's much easier to have a defense because you can point the finger to all these other places. So it's April 30th. We have Greg Zoria back at back on beat. And the uh, headline is, Alsip Defense Names Another Smith Lover. <sighs> this is a tough one, guys. Just for me, I just have to say, brief aside, One, I think I mentioned I got off Reddit because it was so mean. But one of the things that was bothering me so much is what people were saying about Charlene. And I don't, don't come, don't come at me where you just start blaming people for their behavior. We all have made mistakes and we all have reasons for our own little individual pathologies, whatever they may be. But to take a woman who was raped and murdered and then say bad things about her now to her stepdaughter, special place in hell for you is all I'm going to say. So yes, I know my stepmother had dalliances, clearly, because she cheated on her husband with my father who cheated on his wife. So we're not going to really go the high road here. Let's all pretend we're grown-ups and accept that this is these are flawed human beings who had messy lives and yeah he is who was that without sin I think how that one goes through the first stone no everybody's life is a hot mess so 
let's just move through this and not judge and just accept it that this is who these people were. There, ah, well, that guy sounded like kind of parental there. Sorry. Here we go. In an effort to offset prosecution testimony that his client was romantically involved with the woman he is accused of murdering, the defense attorney for Joseph Alsop Jr. focused attention on another man Thursday. The murdered woman is Charlene Smith. She and her husband Lyman, a prominent Ventura attorney, were both found beaten to death in the bedroom of the Ventura Hillside home. During the preliminary hearing for Alsip Thursday, defense attorney Richard Hanawalt, in a largely unproductive effort to question the wife of Superior Court judge, who was a close friend of Mrs. Smith's, tried to show that a man named Rick Atwood and not Alsip with whom Miss was and not Alsip with whom Mrs. Smith was having an affair. That it was Rick Atwood and not Alsip. Okay, here we go. Previous prosecution testimony by a Ventura minister who says he was privy to some criminal admissions made by Alsip linked Alsip and the 33-year-old Mrs. Smith as lovers. To impeach that evidence, Hannah Walt called Charlie, or sorry, called Claire, Clarine, I didn't know that was her first name, we always called her Claire, called Clarine Adele Lewis, wife of Superior Court Judge Marvin Lewis, to the witness stand Thursday. In case you're wondering, this is the same Lewis uh, family, um, Judge Lewis and uh, Marv Lewis and his wife Claire, who happened upon Gary when he was outside of the house on the day of the murder. It was the Lewises that sat with him while um, not knowing my mom was coming, but until my mom showed up, just was a fluke that my mom was there. So it's the same Lewis family. Mrs. Lewis had lunch with Charlene Smith and a third woman on March 13, 1980, the afternoon of the day police believe the Smiths were murdered. As of the afternoon of March 13th, did you know a person by the name of Rick Atwood, Hanold asked Mrs. Lewis. After an objection by Deputy District Attorney Pete Casoris was overruled by Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark, Mrs. Lewis answered, I know of a Rick Atwood. I do not recall Charlene mentioning she was going to see him at all that day. She may have told me where she was going, but I really and truly do not remember what she said. Hanawalt later told the judge that the evidence ultimately would disclose that there was an affection on the part of Mrs. Smith for that person, Atwood, to the exclusion of others, more specifically the exclusion of all others, meaning specifically the accused here. Hanawalt said after the proceedings that Atwood had been subpoenaed by the defense and he definitely intends to call the man possibly today. Hanawalt also asked Mrs. Lewis if Mrs. Smith ever mentioned the name Joe Alsip. We had had a discussion concerning our activities in GAP, the development firm once shared by Smith and Alsip before they split the business up a few months before the murder. I don't recall her specifically using his name, though, said Mrs. Lewis. Thursday was the first time the name of Atwood had surfaced officially since the murders. Atwood is a former sheriff's deputy who currently operates an Oxnard polygraph firm. Police were told that Mrs. Smith visited Atwood that afternoon of the 13th and investigators focused considerable attention on Atwood as a chief suspect in the days that followed discovery of the bodies. But according to police sources, Atwood provided authorities with a valid alibi, passed a polygraph exam, and was discounted as a suspect. He proved to be just one of several people police considered in the murder probe before focusing their attention completely toward Alsip. The preliminary hearing for Alsip, 34, a former business partner of Smith's, is now on its eighth day, and Thursday, Hanawalt began to put on what he says will be an extensive defense. Such defense efforts are unusual at the preliminary hearing stage, where a judge must decide merely if there is a strong suspicion a defendant is guilty and should stand trial. 
But Hanawalt says that in addition to trying to convince Clark that his client should not be held to answer, he also wants to convince the district attorney office that it should proceed with the case past the that it should not proceed with the case past the preliminary hearing stage. The prosecution case rests largely on the testimony of the Reverend Don Michael, associate pastor at the Ventura Missionary Church, who testified last week that in a counseling session with Alsip months after the slaying, Alsip admitted making love to Mrs. Smith the day she died, his hatred for her husband for cheating him out of thousands of dollars in business-related deals, and being at the crime scene when the murders took place. Consequently, Hanawalt's efforts have been aimed largely at discrediting the testimony of Michael. Hanawalt says he can prove the minister fabricated the alleged admissions and his history of embellishing the facts in order to boost his ego and endear himself to law enforcement authorities. In addition to Mrs. Lewis, Hanawalt called several other witnesses Thursday, including a woman who is believed to be the last person to talk to the couple before they died. Isabel Doyle, a close friend of Mrs. Smith's and mother of the victim's ex-husband, Mike Doyle, testified that she called the Smith residence at 6.50 p.m. on March 13th. Um, let's see. That, by the way, just so you, I think you guys probably remember, but Thursday nights were the night Charlene usually got her hair done. So she would be typically, she might be home around by 7. Yeah, like she'd go up to Montecito, get her hair done, and then be home around then. So it makes sense that... Um, Isabel would know roughly when Charlene would be home to place that call. Like, And Charlene, when her hair was up, wasn't out, so it was a good night to do phone calls. So it makes sense to me that Isabel knew to call that night. Um, let's see. She asked Miss Doyle, who said she called to talk to Mrs. Smith about getting together with her the next week, said Lyman answered the phone. We're snacking, he said, according to Mrs. Doyle, who said he sounded like he had a mouthful of food. <laughs> of course he did. That was my dad. Smith, Smith passed the phone to his wife, and as the two women talked, Mrs. Doyle asked Mrs. Smith whether she had heard anything from the governor's office about the appointment to the Superior Court. Um, I asked if Lyman had heard any news, and she said no, the damned um, governor, Jerry Brown, hadn't let him know yet, and how did she put it? He was slow, or words to that effect, about letting them know. Mrs. Doyle testified how both of them sounded as if there was nothing wrong. Earlier Thursday, Hanawalt called Carl Marchetti, who lives next door to the Smith residence, to testify that Alsip visited his home the evening of March 12th, 24 hours before the slayings. Marchetti explained that it was his understanding that Alsip also visited the Smiths that night. Such testimony would tend to offset prosecution evidence that Alsip's fingerprints were found on a goblet in the Smith home after the bodies were discovered. Hanawalt contends the fingerprints, if they are valid, could have been left there the night prior to the killings. Hanawalt also called jail, jail inmates to counter the de- testimony of a jail inmate called last week by the prosecution. That prosecution witness testified that Alsip admitted, while in jail, being concerned about a confession he made to a minister. But the inmates called by the defense Thursday said Alsip made no such comments. So I haven't said anything about this yet, and now we're going to get into the Rick Atwood part. But I have never, ever, ever believed that Charlene slept with Joe Alsip. And some of the reasons why um, might sound terrible, but Charlene didn't travel in the real estate circles. Um, and she definitely was with law enforcement. And that's, if you look at it, you know, it's either my dad, who is a lawyer, or everyone else, just about everyone else that I know about that she had an affair with would have been in law enforcement. So, and and she knew that 
Joe was not held in the highest regard by my dad. And so you might think, oh, well, maybe she would sleep with Joe to piss off my dad. But now that's not that that wouldn't be part that wouldn't be a motivation for Charlene. Her motivation for her affairs was really about feeling loved. It was very much love driven and that emptiness inside of her. And I, I talked with her cousin Carol about that in the interview. You know, there was just this emptiness in Charlene, probably because both of her parents weren't there to raise her and that she just never felt um, full. You know, I, I think, you know, anybody who knows that empty feeling or, or know that you're that quest for feeling full or feeling loved and accepted for who you are and not having to be more than. And then Charlene was always trying to be more than. That, that seemed to be really important to her is that if she could just position herself in a way that she would seem... Um, special or different or covetable that and yet and yet she just wanted to be loved for who she was just herself so I never ever I mean it's 1982 what am I I'm 20 years old but I I think I even knew then there's just no way Charlene would have slept with Joe Alsip if she did I, mean, I could be wrong but I don't think she did it just doesn't make sense to me. He, he's just not even her type, if if you know what I mean. Like, she's, he's just not her type. Okay, so we come back the next day from May 1st, and now Hannah Walt's um, on fire here. So we're back at the Alsip trial. It's Greg again. Ex-deputy tells of meeting with Charlene. A misty-eyed Charlene Smith met with a man who may not have been who may have been her lover, to seek reassurance about their relationship hours before she and her husband were murdered, the man said in court. She seemed slightly upset about something, and she had questions. Wondering if I loved her, Rick Atwood explained somberly Friday afternoon. I believe she talked about having kids, and I would always stay, and would I always stay with her, he said. Atwood explained that they met in, Ox in the Oxnard office for about 30 minutes on the afternoon of March 13th. That night, according to authorities, the 33-year-old woman and her husband Lyman were beaten to death in the bedroom of their Ventura home. Atwood was called by the defense to testify at a preliminary hearing for the man accused of murdering the Smiths, Joseph Alsip. Joseph, talk much, Jen? Both, both men were concerned. Sorry, I just, sometimes I just need to laugh. I really do feel like I'm just talking to you. Um, both men were considered suspects after the bodies of the prominent attorney and his attractive wife were discovered in March 1980. But Atwood, a former sheriff's de de deputy turned polygraph expert, was ruled out, and the lengthy police investigation culminated late last year with the arrest of Alsip. In the course of Alsip's preliminary hearing, a Ventura minister testified for the prosecution that Alsip admitted he was at the crime scene, confided that he too was romantically linked to Smith, and that he hated her husband. Alsip denies the murder and the minister's allegations. Friday, his defense attorney attempted to refute the romantic link by calling Atwood to test about, testify about his affair with Mrs. Smith, which lasted five years. Did you have any reason to believe that she had a romantic attachment with any other person? Hannah Walt asked Atwood Friday. No, Atwood replied. His testimony provided another intriguing dimension in the multifaceted lives of the highly respected attorney and his wife. Many friends knew that the relationship between Smith, who was reportedly in line for a court appointment, and his wife was a rocky one. Oh yes, many people, including his children. Yet, they were inclined to believe that the two had reconciled. But Atwood revealed Friday that he and Mrs. Smith had talked about marriage and the children and children more than once. 
On a previous occasion, you had gone to her home to visit her and found another male present, Hanawald asked. Another male being her husband? Yes, Atwood said. But Hanawald said he didn't call Atwood in an attempt to suggest he was the real murderer. His only purpose was to refute the prosecution's witness contention that Alsip was the woman's lover. After court Friday, Dep- Deputy District Attorney Pete Casores, who is prosecuting Alsip, agreed that Atwood was not a sub- suspect. There hasn't been any solid evidence that he did it, Casores said. Other evidence pre- um, presented by Hanawalt Friday was what was in the eighth day of Alsip's preliminary hearing before the judge. The witness is the Reverend the witness is the Reverend Donald Michael, whose controversial testimony about alleged admissions made to him by Alsip is the core of the prosecution's case. Hal, uh, Hanawalt has already tried to show that Michael has a history of embellishing the facts and a desire to bolster his ego by assisting law enforcement agencies in critical investigations. During ex- an extensive cross-examination of the minister earlier this week, Hanawalt managed to bring out what Michael lied to authorities about, where he kept his notes he made of the crucial meeting with Alsip. The attorney also brought out from the time that Michael initially was interviewed by police that he became more confident about the alleged admissions despite the many intervening months. An associate pastor in charge of family and marriage counseling um, said that Alsip made the alleged admissions during a meeting ahead of the church on May 21. Hanawalt has managed to show that Michael was unclear about the date of the meeting on Friday in his effort to further undermine the minister's credibility. Hanawalt also made a surprising revelation. While questioning a Ventura police lieutenant, Hanawalt revealed that on the crucial date of May 21, according to Michael's own record of counseling sessions, the minister met with another man named Joe who was connected with the crime. Oh my God. Did anybody do any homework here? Joe Murillo, a groundskeeper of the Ventura Missionary Church who confessed to sexually assaulting an eight-year-old woman and who has since been convicted and sentenced to prison for the crime, apparently met with Michael the afternoon of May 21, 1980. Hannah contends that Michael has his Joes mixed up. He's got them confused, said Hanawalt. This is consistent with his paranoia. Michael testified that after he met with Alsip, he began receiving threatening phone calls and was approached twice on the street while he and his wife were out for walks. Friday, Hanawalt called Ventura Police Detective Dave Stone to testify he investigated those threats. Stone said that the police hooked up two devices on Michael's telephone, a tape recorder and a phone trap, a device which can hold a line open until a call is traced. Stone said he also investigated the two incidents in July and October in which Michael reported that he and his wife were threatened by a man in public. Stone said he circulated to other police officers a composite illustration of the man described by Michael. In the end, Stone testified he was never able to corroborate any of the threats. The phone trap and the tape recordings yielded nothing, he said. Michael testified that the phone trap apparently malfunctioned, but Stone said that except for some initial problems with the device, he had no reason to suspect it was not functioning properly. Why are we wasting time on this pastor? Now, okay, so just a quick couple of seconds about Rick Atwood. So um, this still might come up in the articles, but I'm not sure. But there was a fight uh, between Rick and my dad and Charlene. And that was one of the times my dad called me to come up. I guess uh, Rick 
cut, I'm not quite sure how this happened. I'm not sure if my dad caught Rick at the house or Rick caught my dad at the house, but it's weird that they were at the house, that Rick would be at the house at all. But But ironically, Rick used to park down in the parking lot of this same church, not associated with, I mean, the church where Michael worked, but I mean, unrelated to Joe and Michael and everybody else, Rick would park in the parking lot down there because when he could, he could then see my dad's car leave and then he would just come up the street because you don't look at the cars over there in the parking lot of the church. The other thing, and I'm not sure if they'll bring it up here, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, but the story is, if I have it correctly, and I could be wrong, but the story that I understand is that Rick worked in the high-rise, in a high-rise in Oxnard. So if you, you'd have to almost work, look on Google Earth to do this. But if you put in 573 High Point, which is where Dad and Charlene's house was, what you can't see very well is the um, elevation. But they're up. They're up. Ugh, they're up kind of, uh, what can I compare it to? They're up kind of high, like maybe they, it, you know, compared to ground, to uh, sea level, which is what a lot of Ventura is, is sea level. I would say they're up um, maybe what would be equal to maybe a 15-story building, you know, by the time you get that that whole elevation involved. So they're up on a bluff, you know, where you can see, you can see the ocean on a good day. You just can see the blue water. You don't really see waves or anything. You just see the blue water. And it's far away. It's all the way. Again, if you look on Google Earth, you'll see it's far away, but that's kind of the bluff they were on. Well, Rick worked in the um, commercial... I think the commercial banking building. God, talk about trying to tap my memory. It was a big commercial building, but it was the tallest building in in Ventura County at the time, I think. It was in Oxnard. You could see it from everywhere. It was right by the Esplanade, which was the new shopping center compared to the old shopping center, which had the Broadway in Ventura. The Esplanade was the um, young people's shopping center. And this building was there. And the story goes that he had a telescope in his office and he could see in the house. He could see right into, so the windows that he could see into would be the windows in the living room uh, on the side, like on the same side as the fireplace, honestly, the windows into the dining room and the windows. And then you could see, you can see into the kitchen because there were no windows on that wall. You could see to the patio if they were outside, but you could definitely see into the house through that dining room window, which would allow you to see into the hallway. So you could see people moving around. That's creepy to me. That's really creepy. And I don't know if it's 100% true. So that's something I've grown up believing and had understood. Uh, And I just think it's interesting because, you know, once again, we're talking about a a former law enforcement person. So these people know how to play the game. And there was a lot of hijinks going on with how he was seeing Charlene and and, um, how he and my dad, I mean, just fighting. So, ugh. I, I, it's funny that a lot of those memories I kind of pushed out of my brain because they were so um, stupid. That's what they were, stupid. Okay, let's move on. It's May 3rd. So yeah, we're to May 3rd. Greg's still there reporting. And this, here we go. Subpoena of the minister leads to confrontation. Efforts to subpoena a minister as a witness in the Joe Alsip murder case led to a confrontation at the Ventura Missionary Church Sunday. Oh, sorry. I'm laughing because, of course, they're serving a subpoena on a Sunday at the church. Talk about hitting them right in the middle of their main event. Those trying to serve a subpoena on the Reverend Leonard DeWitt said they were met with resistance by church parishioners protecting the minister. 
Oh, we're going to hear more about the parishioners, parishioners in this episode. That's coming up. Ventura attorney Richard Hanawalt, who is seeking DeWitt's testimony in the trial, said a woman armed with a subpoena. <laughs> Sorry, that's a funny way to say it. A woman armed with a subpoena was jabbed in the midsection and a child accompanying her was shoved. But the Reverend, Reverend C. Leslie Miller, minister at the church, said this morning that the woman, identified as Hanawalt's secretary and... <laughs> Sorry, this just never continues to be delightful. (sighs) Let me read the word that I just saw ahead of time as I was slightly pre-reading. But the Reverend Leslie Miller, minister at the church, said this morning the woman, identified as Hannah Walt's secretary and fiancé, Marlene Schaller, was never touched. And the child, Miller said, had deliberately placed himself in front of a car carrying DeWitt in an effort to halt the vehicle. The boy was removed from in front of the car by a church official because his life was in danger, Miller said. DeWitt said today that there was never any resistance and he chose to voluntarily appear in court today despite never being properly served Sunday. I was never trying to avoid. I was never asked, DeWitt said outside the courtroom today. DeWitt began testifying late this morning. Hanawalt sought DeWitt's testimony because he was the minister when the Reverend Don Michael, an associate pastor, claims Alsip came to him to confess the two slayings. The preliminary hearing for Alsip began its ninth day in front of Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark. Hanawalt said Mrs. Schaller, so I'm laughing here because it's his fiancée, but she's Mrs. Schaller, so of course she's divorced. Oh, the 70s and 80s were a lovely time. Marriage was held in such high regard. Okay, Hannah Welt said Mrs. Schaller was injured in Sunday's incident at the church, but, but Miller said she was never touched. The target of the subpoena, DeWitt, is the former head of the Ventura Missionary Church and current president of the Missionary Church Association. DeWitt, who now lives in Indiana, was apparently visiting and speaking at his old church Sunday when two women and a private investigator came there to serve him a subpoena. According to two versions provided by Hanawalt and Miller, the incident occurred like this. Private investigator Robert Temple, hired by the defense, I think that's the guy who was um, sitting outside my house in at Davis. I, that name sounds so familiar. And he was a private investigator, so I bet that was him. Private investigator Robert Temple, hired by the defense, visited the church about 9.30 Sunday morning, apparently with the idea of catching DeWitt between services, Hanawalt said. Temple later reported to Hanawalt that a church official was very uncooperative and indicated he would steer DeWitt away from any subpoenas, Hanawalt said. As a result, Hanawalt sent Mrs. Schaller and another woman to try and serve the subpoena. The second woman was accompanied by three young boys. According to Hanawalt's version of the event, Mrs. Schaller tried to serve DeWitt as he was walking out of the sanctuary. As DeWitt left the last service shortly before noon, a church official shoved Mrs. Schaller with his elbow as she approached DeWitt. Miller said that Mrs. Schaller never came near DeWitt. Not one finger of any person was laid upon her, and we have at least 20 to 50 witnesses to back this up, Miller said. Minutes later, the confrontation that both sides agreed did occur developed in the parking lot outside the church. There, a woman with a subpoena located DeWitt, leaving the area in a station wagon. She approached the car and tried to shove the subpoena through the driver's side of of the car. DeWitt was a passenger. During this episode, one of the young boys... 
Hannah White, Hannah White, <laughs> sorry. God dang, there's so much theater here. Hannah White, Hannah Walt identified him as Robert Castillo, about age 12, stood in front of the car. Hannah Walt said there was no plan for the boy to do so. But DeWitt said the boy was clearly ordered to stand in front of the car. I heard her, the woman, say, stand in front of the car, DeWitt said. Hannah Walt said a church official pushed the boy out of the way. Miller said, that's not true. He picked up the child because his life was in danger, Miller said. We have heavy traffic here. Prior to DeWitt's appearance in court this morning, Hannah Walt called Lyman Smith's adult daughter, hey, it's me, Jennifer Smith, to provide additional testimony supporting the defense efforts to show that Charlene was romantically linked to someone other than Alsip. Prosecution evidence has indicated that Alsip and Charlene were lovers, but an ex-sheriff's deputy, Rick Atwood, testified last week that he and Charlene were romantically involved for the last five years of her life. This morning, Ms. Smith testified about witnessing an anger confrontation between Atwood and Lyman Smith outside the Smith residence some two years before the murders. She also testified about seeing Charlene meet with Atwood. Why, look, there we go. Let's, oh no, that's the end of the article. Okay, that's what I testified about. I told you I used to get called up there to bust up fights. Ugh, what was I going to do really? I mean, what was I going to do? But that's what I had to do. I don't even know why I went. Why did my mom let me go? These are the questions. You know she's going to get a phone call tomorrow now. Okay, now we go to the next day, which is Tuesday, May 4th. Uh, And here's the headline. It's Greg again. Yeah, I'm just making sure sometimes, sorry guys, sometimes these articles are laid across the page. I've just got to make sure I'm going from the end of one column over to the, these things were continued from page A1, that sort of thing. Just want to make sure I've got the lay of the land here. Okay, roadblock. Judge limits questioning in Alsip case. Defense efforts in the preliminary hearing for Joseph Alsip ran into a roadblock this morning as the, as j- the judge began to curb efforts to question key prosecution witnesses. Huh, that's interesting. It was the first hitch in a parade of defense witnesses designed to show that Alsip is not responsible for the murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Tempers were on edge this morning as Judge Bruce Clark, presiding over the preliminary hearing, suggested that defense attorney Richard Hanawalt was attempting to embarrass and unduly harass the Reverend Don Michael, who was called to testify again this morning. It's interesting. I just think it's interesting, by the way, that they have Michael in and out and in and out and in and out. I wonder if it has anything to do with when the judge said he was going to limit those questions and wanted the questions in advance. And so he was slowly ruling on what questions to allow. And that's why Michael kept coming back. Okay. Michael has previously testified that he was privy to some admissions about the murders allegedly made to him by Alsip. Consequently, the defense, which denies the admissions ever took place, has focused much of its case toward undermining the minister's credibility. Michael spent three days on direct and cross-examination last week. Hanawalt called him back to the stand today, but following a barrage of objections from Deputy District Attorney Pete Kasoris, who has charged that Hanawalt's, Hanawalt's queries were repetitious or irrelevant, Clark cautioned Hanawalt about covering old ground with this witness. This is not your second time at bat, Clark told Hanawalt. You don't get to bring him back and cross-examine him some more. Hanawalt was anxious to question Michael about purported inconsistencies in his recollections of past interviews with police and the ALSIP counseling session. At the lunch break, Clark said he would allow Hanawalt to continue this afternoon, but only on new matters. 
As a practical matter, Mr. Hannawell, I will allow you to ask Mr. Michael certain questions that if you have admitted, omitted during your cross-examination last week, so long as they cover totally new matter. I am not going to allow you to embarrass, unduly harass, or continue with this as though you were just an extension. This was just an extension of your cross-examination. This is the 10th day of the preliminary hearing, and Clark must ultimately decide whether Alsip should stand trial. Clark, the judge, must ultimately decide whether Clark uh, Alsip should stand trial. Today marked the second straight frustrating day for the defense. On Monday, a prominent minister and church leader called to testify for the defense proved to be more of a plus for the prosecution. Oh, we're going to find out what the pastor said, who was the whole subpoena drama. The testimony of the Reverend Leonard DeWitt, former head of the Ventura Missionary Church, tended to support Michael's versions of crucial events. Michael, an associate professor at the uh, pastor at the Ventura Missionary Church, testified that the admissions occurred on May 21, 1980, about two months after the Smiths were found dead. The defense contends that the counseling session never took place. When Michael reported the alleged admissions to police months later, he produced notes of the meeting. The defense also maintains that the notes were manufactured by Michael when police requested some verification. But DeWitt testified Monday, okay, so his boss testified Monday during questioning by Hannah Walt, I was aware that someone, sometime, previously had shared with Don, inform- Don Michael, information that had been bearing on the Smith case. He said Don shared it with me, shared with me that someone, no name was divulged, had come to the counseling center and had shared information with him that would have some connection with the case. Now, mind you guys, just so you know, this church, again, is so close to my dad's house. So this case, not only was it sensational in Ventura, but for the church, it's like right there. Like, hello, you could point to the house. You can see it from the parking lot. It's just right there up the hill. The, the church sat down at the bottom. Again, you can Google this. It's still the same configuration if you look at Google Earth, but that church is just down the street from 573 High Point. If you just go down and look right at Foothill Boulevard, which is at the base of High Point Drive, um, sorry, the south end of High Point Drive, yeah, that's south, um, you'll see this church, huge church, sitting there. So you know they knew what the Smith case was. Okay. Uh, let's see. Michael has stated that rewritten notes from the meeting with Alsip were given to DeWitt within a week or so after the May 21st meeting. Monday, DeWitt verified that an envelope containing some of Michael's material was given to him and he placed it in a locked cabinet. DeWitt said he received the envelope sometime after he had shared with me that someone had shared information with him at the counseling center, sensitive with the Smith case. Hannawell pointed out to DeWitt that he had previously told a defense investigator that he received the envelope in early 1981, months after the May interview. Wait a minute, I'm so confused. Oh yeah, because it was May 1980. So early 1981. Oh yeah, that would be a long time because... The session supposedly took place in May of 1980, and now he told the investigator that he got the envelope in 1980, in early 1981. Uh, yeah, that's a gap. Okay. Uh, but DeWitt said he was rushed when the invest- investigator interviewed him. I don't recall what I told the investigator, he said. I personally think that the material was given to me long before early 1981, DeWitt said. DeWitt's testimony did differ from Michael's version of the facts regarding the police interviews and where the notes were placed. DeWitt said he attended police interviews with Michael, although Michael never mentioned DeWitt having been present. 
This morning, Hanawalt attempted to try to expose other discrepancies in Michael's testimony by calling his wife Gertrude. You knew that was going to be her name, didn't you? Oh, so sweet. Okay. Um, this is uh, Michael's wife, Gertrude. But she seemed to verify her husband's testimony. He was stymied, however, in efforts to question her about medical problems relating to hypertension Michael allegedly suffered in 1980. Clark ruled such questions were irrelevant. In other testimony Monday, Hannah Walt was able to show that after the alleged May 21 interview and during the weeks when Michael said he received threats on his life, Alsip, his wife, or the couple's children continued to visit the church counseling center clear through October of 1980. Proceedings began to drag noticeably Monday afternoon, during which the defense questioning of church employees who are connected with the counseling's operation. Hannah Walt's tendency to ask involved questions and the witnesses' repeated requests for clarification provided some lighthearted moments. I think I told you guys, Hannah Walt loved words and he loved theater. And he, when he questioned me, I, I don't remember it being too confusing, but I also know I had been coached to, you know, what they always tell you when you're testifying, don't answer quickly, always take a beat before you start to answer the question in case the prosecution wants to uh, object. If you start talking too soon, you can really blow it. Um, but I also, like I said, Hanawalt was so weird looking that I was sitting there fascinated looking at him. I do remember sitting there in the witness box just studying him because he just is such an odd looking man. All right, let's continue. For example, here's the here's the levity. For example, during Hannah Walt's questioning of Shelly Ann McSweeney, Michael's receptionist, he wanted to find out if she'd ever seen the defendant enter the counseling center alone and in an intoxicated or disheveled condition. Michael had testified that Alsip was in such a condition during the crucial meeting. Okay, so did you ever see Alsip walk in and look like that? And her answer was, McSweeney could remember nothing about that day. Hannah Walt asked her, do you recall ever seeing Mr. Alsip there at a time when he was disheveled, shirt rumpled, hair in a state of disarray, and a general condition of being disheveled? Mrs. McSweeney responded, what do you mean by disheveled exactly? Hannah Walt launched into a detailed explanation. Okay. That's shirt tail out, button perhaps undone, one sleeve rolled higher than the other, hair unkempt, possibly not having shaved that morning, attitude of unconcern. Would you describe that as being a state of dishevelment? Prosecutor Casaurus amusedly commented, I'm learning something here. And Miss McSweeney again asked, is that two questions? <sighs> well, said Hannah, well, let me ask this. The fellow who's seated right there at my table, have you on any occasions, have you ever seen him did he appear in any way to ever look like a bum, Judge Clark interjected, apparently unable to suppress his dire to desire to simplify the question. There you go, said Hannah. Well, that's right. Yes, said Mrs. McSweeney. Oh, my God. That was like prying, prying it loose to just find out if he ever looked like a bum. Okay, so you, so we brought up, or we know that the church... Meanwhile, the congregation is watching these articles in the paper, right? They have, are seeing this happen with their pastor, who they love and respect and everything. Well, it turns out on May 4th, we get a whole letters to the editor section that is basically the roll-up. Well, we have one, two, three, four letters here. It looks like 
that was it. Like that was the letters to, it might've been one more column, but that wasn't about it. But we put four letters to the editor here. And so here is the headline that sat over to the letters to the, ed oh, what's a letter to the editor you're asking? Because clearly you're not 58 years old. In the olden days, when you didn't like something that was happening in your community, one of the things you could do is write a letter to the editor. And then they would go through, the editorial team typically went through this process of picking the letters that they felt best represented public sentiment, either pro or con an issue. Sometimes editorial boards would work for um, some balance. Sometimes they'd use the letters to balance off what was happening in the news. So that's what's going to happen here, right? The news is happening and they're going to feature some letters that show um, some balance just so folks know that there are other things happening, other voices, other opinions in the mix. So letters to the editor section that was a big deal when I was growing up, and I've written letters to the editor. And of course, you're nodding your head. Of course you did, Jen. Of course you did. But it was a big deal. Like That was a real sense of pride and um, civic duty and civic-mindedness to be able to compose a letter that was good enough that would make your case that you could have this argument and that you could support your argument and that, that the editorial team would pick your letter to publish. So I'm just saying it was a big deal back then. Now everybody's allowed to get on social media and just act like an asshat. So it was much more, God, now I sound like an old person. It was much more dignified. Let's just say there was much more of a structure to it so that things were taken a bit more seriously. And it was very much intended to show some balance in the news. So that's what a letter to the editor was. So in this case, on May 4th, 1982, here's the, the headline that sits over the letters. Who's on trial in Smith murder case? Editor, Star Free Press. Re, R-E, regarding the treatment of Donald L. Michael, both in court and in recent front page stories on preliminary hearings in the Smith murder case in the Star Free Press. One wonders if serving as a witness for the cause of justice is worth the price of such character assassination as Mr. Michael has endured or the potential damage to one's reputation and or professional standing. According to an April 26 story, Dr. Von Dedenroth examined police and investigative reports concerning Michael and observed Michael testify last week. He did not, apparently, interview Michael or have any personal contact with him before forming his psychological evaluations. Anyone looking objectively at the counseling profession could draw the following conclusions regarding incidents related in your paper concerning Mr. Michael. Counselors, whether secular or clergy, are often called upon to help extremely troubled, hurting people. In listening to these people, counselors do take the risk that in that once in a while, some disturbed individual will later regret something he has said enough to make threats or to react, react in other bizarre ways. Evidently, Mr. Michael has faced this risk before a very few times in the 20-some years of his professional life. It should be noted that clergymen are often sought by those who either distrust or cannot afford a psychologist or other paid counselor. That's an interesting point. Some know they need help but are afraid of what others will think of them for seeing a shrink. That's in quotes, by the way. Shrinks were another name used for psychiatrists. Sometimes it is the clergyman who helps such persons to see their need for a psychiatrist. Mr. Michael is to be commended for accepting the consequences of his willingness to serve as a witness. No wonder so many others are reluctant to do so. That was from Susan Huff of Ventura. Editor, Starfree Press. 
I must speak up for I cannot continue reading in the Starfy Press the daily account of defense attorney Richard Hanawalt's attempt to discredit the Reverend Michael as a witness in the Smith case without making a statement. My husband and I do not attend Ventura Missionary Church, but during a difficult period in our marriage, we sought counseling there at their Marriage and Family Counseling Center. We were fortunate to have Reverend Michael work with us. During the period of time we were counseled with him, we found him to be a very qualified, concerned, and caring individual. We felt that he was not just doing his job, but he was genuinely cared for us and cared about our marriage and our family. He was a great help to us. Though we have not yet seen Reverend Michael since the time of counseling, some two or three years ago, we are still very appreciative of him as a person and all the ministry of her. Stop right here because I think we're at a good place for pausing and we move along. When we come back to the paper, so I will put those in um, a blog, blog notes, or uh, I forget what I called them, but I'll put them up there. And they'll always, always be links in the podcast notes so that you know how to go find these things. Um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, wow, we've got still a little bit more to go here. Well, not that much. There's probably two more episodes. That's it. So, okay, we'll wrap up this tonight and then I will be back because once we get through this LSIP stuff, I'm going to get back to the current situation of where we are now with D'Angelo. There were some things shared at the meeting with the prosecutors that I want to share with you. And then, um, well, not what they said, but things I want to share some stuff about what they said. And then um, also we need to get to those motions, even though we've got plenty of time because this thing, we're not going back to court till the end of June. But I'm trying to line up some good guests in the meantime because I realize there's still a lot of people that I'd like to talk to. And I know I'm still chasing Dr. Speth, even though he can't talk about the case per se. And I'm also chasing a couple other people who have a you know, some kind of relationship to the case that I think you'll find interesting. So stay tuned and I will be back. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to subscribe and share if you're so inclined. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. June on a 